friends, in his best-selling book, God Came Near, pastor and author Max Licato tells the incredible true story of one man's personal tragedy and how this man was rescued by the power of forgiveness. Jungle aviation and radio service that's also known as JARS. This is the aviation department of Wycliffe Bible Translators. Looking back over its long track record, JARS had flown thousands and thousands of hours over a 25-year span without having even one fatal accident. But then all that changed on April the 7th, 1972. On that day, a Piper Aztec lost its right engine, and it crashed in Papua New Guinea, killing all seven of the missionary workers aboard that airplane. Shockingly, this aircraft had just rolled out of the maintenance hangar of Wycliffe just the day before. It had just undergone its 100-hour routine inspection. Now, while all the Wycliffe workers were stunned at this news, of course, the chief mechanic whose job it was to maintain this aircraft, this mechanic was frantic. How could this have happened? And he looked back in his mind and he began to review each step that he had performed in inspecting that right engine when suddenly it struck him and he recoiled in horror. He remembered when he was tightening up the fuel line with his hand, another coworker interrupted him and asked for some help. He was supposed to come back with a wrench and tighten down that fuel line with one final crank, but he got busy and he forgot. And of course, that faulty connection would have allowed raw airplane fuel to spew out and catch fire while the plane was in flight. A subsequent investigation of the airplane's wreckage confirmed that's exactly what happened. This mechanic's guilt at being responsible for the deaths of his companions, it crushed him. He was nearly to the point of suicide on account of his tragic mistake. When he saw seven caskets lined up in a little tropical church just a few days later, it nearly drove him insane. He later said in an interview, looking at those caskets was like a punch in the stomach. I wanted nothing else but to run out of there. How could I ever face my friends? How could I face myself? I was overwhelmed with guilt. For days, this mechanic didn't know what to do. The other mechanics tried to talk to him, tried to encourage him, tried to counsel him, as did his own family, but it was no good. But when the family of Doug Hunt, Doug was the pilot who was killed in the accident when his family was preparing to return home back to New Zealand, this mechanic knew he had to go see them. This was his last chance to go and see them and to apologize and to beg for their forgiveness. He stood before Doug's widow and he sobbed. He could barely get the words out in her presence as he confessed his fatal error. Looking down through the tears streaming through his, his own face, he looked down at his own hand and he said to Doug's widow, there's the hand that took Doug's life. Well, that's when Glennis Hunt, who was Doug's widow, Glennis did something that was truly, truly amazing. She reached down and she took that mechanic's right hand and she held it in her two hands. And then with caring words, she extended her love. She extended comfort and she extended forgiveness 
to that mechanic. It truly was an incredible scene. Not too long after that event, this forgiven mechanic gave an interview, and in that interview he said this, quote, except for God's grace and the power of forgiveness, I'd be right now somewhere cowering in the corner in guilt-ridden despair. I would have been the eighth fatality of that Aztec crash. Friends, we're going to take our Bibles this morning and uh, we're opening to Mark chapter 2. And today you and I are going to watch as Jesus Christ reaches out with the power of forgiveness. And we're going to see him transform the life of a man who was desperate, a man who was disabled in both his body and his soul. But while this man and his friends rejoiced at the forgiveness that he received, we're going to see that some people present actually were incensed that Jesus would offer forgiveness. Friends, we're going to take our Bibles, and I hope you'll open with me now here in the Gospel of Mark, Mark 2, in this message that I've entitled, Forgiveness Front and Center. Now this morning we're coming here to these opening verses of Mark 2. We're catching up with Jesus as Jesus comes back to this little town called Capernaum. He had been out on a preaching tour in around the Galilee area, the Sea of Galilee, Back in chapter 1, Jesus had previously healed a demon-possessed man at the synagogue that was at Capernaum, and he healed dozens more later that evening at the home of Peter. While Jesus had gone off, he had conducted this brief preaching tour, he comes back to Capernaum. And as Jesus comes back to Capernaum, the word starts to circulate quickly that Jesus is back in town. And so massive crowds begin to engulf the house where Jesus is staying. Well, friends, as we watch this massive crowd assemble and as we take note of this disabled man, how does Jesus respond? How does Jesus respond to the disabled man? How does he respond to the uh, audience? How does he respond to these critical scribes? And most especially this morning, friends, we want to answer this question, what insights can you and I take away from Jesus' actions here? What can we learn and apply for our lives in the present? Well, friends, I want to show you this first of all this morning from God's Word. I want you to see, number one, Jesus keeps gospel truth at the center. Now, in your bulletin this morning, if you open your bulletin, you'll see some notes that you can follow along with some of the scriptures that we'll consider today. But I want you to see this first of all. Jesus keeps gospel truth at the center. Look with me at Mark 2. Verses 1 and 2. And again, he, that's Jesus, and again, Jesus entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even at the door. And he preached the word to them. Friends, you know, one of the most popular movies that's on TV every single year around Easter time is this famous film, maybe you've seen it, Jesus of Nazareth. It's on almost every year during that holiday. But you know what? When we study the Gospels, there we discover it might be just as appropriate to call Jesus, Jesus of Capernaum. Because it was at Capernaum that really Jesus had his ministry headquarters. Yes, Jesus grew up in Nazareth, but the people of Nazareth were extremely antagonistic to Jesus. And so Jesus had his home here at Capernaum. Jesus had this uh, home here, this ministry headquarters. It was his base of operations. Uh, if you were to go back and look at Mark chapter 1, verse 29, 
Mark tells us it was not uncommon that when Jesus was in Capernaum, he would often stay at the home of Peter. Well, friends, we're coming to our text here. Mark writes in verses 1 and 2 that after a brief time out preaching, Jesus returns back to this little town and most likely back to the home of Peter where he was staying. But notice, no, no sooner does Jesus get back into town that the whole house is immediately swarmed by people. They are coming to this home because they know Jesus is there. They are desperate for the touch of Jesus on their lives. Now, you and I might say this as modern-day Americans, and we're all very private and we're very you know, careful about our homes and who we allow to come into our homes. As Americans, you and I might say, well, why doesn't Peter just tell those people, get away? You know, why doesn't Peter do the, the old famous saying, hey, you, get off my lawn, right? Why doesn't he send the people away? Well, friends, listen, there's just one answer. Why, why Peter did not turn all these folks away? And it's a two-word answer, Mediterranean hospitality. It was just a culture. When someone came to your house and they wanted to visit you, even if you had not invited them, it would be rude for you to turn them away. So here's this massive crowd gathering in and all around Peter's home. Well, what's Jesus' response to this? I mean, Jesus got back, just got back from a long preaching uh, trip. Here he is. How is Jesus going to respond? Is he frustrated? Is he annoyed? Is he upset that, that all you people can't even give me a night's rest? Is that what Jesus says? No. Well, you see there at the end of verse 2, Mark says, and Jesus preached the word to them. So in other words, Jesus did not look at this as an obstacle. He looked at this event as an opportunity. Here was just another opportunity for Jesus to open his mouth, give these people the good news of the gospel, that salvation is found when one repents of their sins and looks to God's free grace. You know, friends, there's a great lesson for, for you and I in that this morning. There's a great lesson you and I can take away here, not only as individuals, but even as a local church. First of all, as individuals, you and I need to remember that we have been called to be faithful witnesses. We are called to be messengers. We're called to be ambassadors of the gospel message. Friend, can I just remind you of something that you already know? Lost people are not going to find the gospel in USA Today. They're not going to find the gospel on Fox News they're not going to find it on secular talk radio. They're not going to find it on Magic 93. No, the only way that people are going to hear of the good news of Jesus Christ is when Christians like you and I share it with them. You and I need a reminder that we have a, a, a part to play in expressing and sharing the good news of Jesus. We ought to look to share the good news about Jesus as often as we can. Every time there's an opportunity that opens to us, we ought to be open to share the love that we have for Jesus and his gospel. Look in your sermon notes this morning. I gave you the scripture from Romans 10, verses 14 to 17. This is the Apostle Paul's pen. Paul writes there in Romans 10, 14 through 17, How then will they call on him who they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? How are they to hear without someone speaking or preaching? So, faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. They need to hear, don't they? Before they could ever believe on Jesus, they need to hear of him. They need to hear what he did. I like 1 Corinthians 2 too. It says this, Paul says, For I decided to know nothing among you 
except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So, so it, was a, it was a focus for the Apostle Paul. It was a focus for the early believers of the New Testament to always be ready to speak about the good news of Jesus. Friend, there's a lesson here for our local church too. A very important lesson. You know, many churches today operate all kinds of ministries. Some churches have soup kitchens. Uh, some uh, run little food pantries. Some churches have clothing uh, closets for the needy. And listen, those are good things. I don't want to denigrate those. I don't want to speak negatively of those things. Meeting physical needs in Jesus' name, that's important. That is a blessing there. But we cannot ever forget that the most important priority we have as a local church is to speak and preach and teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel must be at the heart. It must be at the center of everything that the local church does. And if we lose that center, if you lose the gospel, if you're so busy doing all these other things, but you lose the gospel, then you lose what makes the church so unique and so special. The minute the church loses its focus on the gospel, the gospel which is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you lose that. If a church loses that, it's the beginning of the end for that church. So friends, there's a lesson here for us individually, a lesson for us uh, as a local church. We must always keep the gospel at the center of what we do. And we as individuals must be always ready to speak about the good news of Jesus. Now let me show you a second action that Jesus takes here. Number two, Jesus approves persistent, unrelenting faith. Here's number two. Jesus approves persistent, unrelenting faith. Look at verse 3. Then they came to him. That's Jesus, the him. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic or a paralyzed man who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus saw their faith. Friends, on October 29th, 1941, it was the middle of World War II, and Winston Churchill went to give an address at the Harrow School there in London. This was one of the shortest addresses that Prime Minister Winston Churchill ever gave, but historians agree that it was also one of the most powerful. It was one of the most memorable Churchill gave some remarks to the students, made some comments about the war, but then he closed his speech with these memorable words. Churchill said, never give in. Never give in. Never, never, never in nothing, great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never give in. Friends, as you and I keep pressing forward here in this narrative, we get to verses 3 to 5, we meet a group of men who never gave in. They had this desire to bring one of their friends to see Jesus. Remember verses 1 and 2 there, Mark told us that no sooner had Jesus come to the house here, the whole house was swarming with people, filled up on the inside, people pushing around the outside, just trying to even get in the door it was so full, people couldn't even approach the front door. Well, now we meet this group of four men in verse 3. Do you see them? Can you imagine their discouragement when they are carrying their friend on this little homemade stretcher or their friend is paralyzed? 
They're trying to get him to Jesus, but they can't even get to the front door. The house is already filled to capacity. And essentially now Jesus is out of reach. Hey, aren't you glad when you came to church today that it wasn't so packed that you got turned away? Aren't you thankful that there were doors that opened and there was a walkway to walk in? Aren't you so glad you didn't get turned away at the door? Christian friends, this is one of my favorite narratives in the entire New Testament. Not only because of the power of Jesus that's on display here, but I love this passage, I love this narrative, especially because of the courage and the creativity of these four guys. They saw the house was overflowing with people, swarming with people, surrounded with people. You can't even get to the front door. So what did they do? Let's make another door. Let's make our own door. So they did. They made their own entrance. And what did they do? Well, you have to understand something here. Back in New Testament times, homes were rather simple affairs. They were typically a, uh, a square home, one story. They had a large flat roof. And the roof was built by putting solid beams across, and the beams would extend across the walls. And then in between those beams, they would take sticks and straw, and they would interlace everything together, almost like a thatched roof. But it was flat. And then they would take that thatched roof, and then they would cover it. Sometimes they'd cover it with mud. Sometimes they would cover it with clay. And then they would smooth it down, and then that way it would shed water. Sometimes people had even tiled roofs. They would make little clay tiles and use those if they were a little more wealthy. Now, most of the houses in Israel in ancient times had a flat roof. And a lot of times, folks would go up on their roof. And they'd go up there to relax, and they'd sit, and they'd cool off, get some fresh air in the evenings. So you can understand, it's a single-story roof that's easy to get to. But friends, what I want you to see here, most importantly, is this. No obstacle was going to stop these guys from getting their friend to Jesus. Nothing was going to stop them. They were not going to be hindered. Not a mass of people and not even a roof. Now, I want you to use your imagination. I want you to imagine that you're one of the very fortunate few that happened to get inside Peter's house when this event was going down. Here you are, you're inside. You're one of the lucky ones, right? You got the golden ticket, you got inside. And you're in there and you're listening to Jesus. And all of a sudden now you start hearing all these footsteps over your head. It's all this rumbling and all this noise up there. And you're thinking, man, quit this. We're listening down here. And then all of a sudden you're listening to Jesus talking. You can see through the sunlight that's coming through the, the front door, you see little particles of dust coming down. And then all of a sudden you hear banging. You hear digging. And all of a sudden now, more pieces of stuff are falling down, right where Jesus is teaching. And here's, here's all this dirt and dust and debris and straw. You can imagine all the dust and the stuff filling up the room. Here are these four guys digging a hole in someone else's roof. Not only are they doing that, they're interrupting Jesus. They're interrupting his teaching. And then all of a sudden, what happens? The roof opens up. You see the sky. And these guys lower a person down on four ropes on this little homemade stretcher. But did you see how Jesus responds to this? 
the racket, the noise, the dust, the, d- the dirt, the raining debris. I don't think I would be real happy if debris started raining down as I was t- trying to teach this morning. But look what Jesus does. Jesus wasn't angry. It says, Scripture says Jesus saw their faith. He saw their faith. So Jesus wasn't angry. He wasn't annoyed. He wasn't interrupted in any way. That He wasn't mad that he was being showered with dirt. Instead, Scripture says he was moved. His heart was touched by these four guys. These four guys had so much faith in Jesus. They were so convinced that Jesus was the answer for their disabled friend. They were willing to break all the protocols of normalcy. They were willing to break the rules, ruffle some feathers, and even bust through somebody else's roof to get their friend to Jesus. Let me tell you, friends, that is an amazing faith. That is an amazing kind of faith. So is there a lesson here for you and I? There certainly is. When we see the persistence of these men, when we see the perseverance of these men, it ought to stir your heart this morning, friend. It ought to stir mine to an even greater courage and even greater creativity when it comes to reaching out and bringing people to Jesus. Look in your notes. I gave you a great quote from that legendary preacher, Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon, many years ago to his congregation in London, Spurgeon said this, If we cannot get sinners where Jesus is by ordinary methods, we must use extraordinary ones. Where the case is very urgent, we must not mind running some risks and shocking some proprieties. Oh, that we had more daring faith among us. It was the presence of Jesus which excited victorious courage in the forebearers of the palsied man. Is the Lord not among us now? If so, then through door, through window, or through roof, let us, breaking all impediments, labor to bring poor souls to Jesus. Friends, these four men didn't just sit idly by, hoping, praying for their disabled friend. No, these four men took action, tangible action, to help their friend meet Jesus. And even when the obstacles appeared, they didn't get discouraged. They didn't get frustrated. They pressed ahead. They found ways to think outside the box. They were creative. Christian friend, when it comes to that spouse who doesn't know the Lord yet, when it comes to that friend, that relative, that co-worker that you're trying to reach for Jesus, listen to me. Don't give up. Don't give up. Keep reaching out. Keep speaking the truth. Keep inviting them to a back-to-church Sunday. Keep inviting them to a church in the park event. Do everything you can think of. And when the obstacles come, get creative. Don't give up. Whatever you do, just like those four men did, just like Winston Churchill said, never give in. Never, 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 never give in. Continue to reach out for Jesus. Well, family, this this man finally makes it. He's in front of Jesus now. So what happens? Let's look at number three now. Jesus addresses Spiritual needs as first priority. This is going to blow you away. You're going to be amazed by this. Number three, Jesus addresses spiritual needs as a first priority. Look again at verse 5 down through verse 7. When Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, Son, your sins 
are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? You know, family, there are many occasions when, in the Gospels where Jesus does something completely unexpected. And right here in Mark 2, verse 5, is one of those times. Jesus does something shocking, totally unexpected. Stop and think about it. Out of nowhere, a giant six-foot hole opens up in Peter's roof. I mean, can you imagine Peter's wife? You're going to have to clean that up, Jesus. I mean, wow, a six-foot hole in the roof, and down through the hole comes a guy. I mean, let that soak in. This is shocking. Here's a guy on a homemade stretcher. They lower him down in front of Jesus, and it's obvious this guy's paralyzed. He's disabled. He obviously can't walk. Everybody can see his little skinny legs. They can see his atrophied muscles. And now everyone is waiting. What is Jesus going to say? Everyone gets quiet. They're waiting to hear. They're waiting for Jesus to speak the words of healing for the man's body. Look at verse 5. Jesus said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. What are we to make of this? Why does Jesus speak, first of all, here about forgiveness of sins rather than a word of physical healing? Well, friends, it's important to know something here. In the times of the Old and New Testaments, many people were convinced that all disease, all disorders, all afflictions were the direct result of someone's sin. In other words, back in ancient times, people were convinced if you were sick, if you were diseased, if you were handicapped, you must have sinned in some way. You must have sinned, and you deserved it, so this is why God gave you this sickness, this disease, this disability. Now, was that a correct assumption? Was that a legitimate conclusion? The answer is no. Jesus was constantly pushing back against this faulty belief. In fact, over in John chapter 9, Jesus' disciples met up with this blind guy, and the disciples say to Jesus, Jesus, who sinned, this guy or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, it was not that this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the work of God might be displayed in him. So when we study the Bible carefully, there isn't always a one-for-one correlation between sickness and sin. But when we get to our text here in, in Mark 2, this paralyzed man had probably believed that. He was probably convinced of that. That the reason he was handicapped was because of some kind of sin in his life. And so with great tenderness, with great compassion, the first thing that Jesus does before he addresses the man's broken body is dismiss the man's sins. He frees him from the weight of guilt that he's been carrying. Now this man may not have committed some sin that, that led to his disability, But you know what? When we study the Bible, the Scripture does say, ultimately, the the root cause, the root cause of all sin and all disease and all death in planet Earth ultimately is the result of sin. We go back to Adam and Eve in the garden, Genesis 3. All of humanity was plunged into corruption through the sin of Adam and Eve, our first parents. All human beings plunged into sin and corruption in our bodies and souls. It's because of that sin. Adam and Eve 
it's there that the whole planet began to experience disease and deformities and death. So here in this moment, Jesus is putting his finger on this man's greatest need. This is his greatest need. This is his greatest need. The condition of his soul, his sins. This was the first priority. Not necessarily the healing of his body, but the forgiveness of his sins. Friends, what do you and I take away from this? What can we learn from this for our lives today? Well, friends, this reminds us, this great statement by Jesus of the forgiveness of sins, it reminds us, friends, that for our ministry as individuals, as well as our ministry as a local church, our first priority must always be to help people find forgiveness of their sins. That's number one priority, helping people find the forgiveness of their sins, that they might meet Jesus and be released from all the guilt that goes with their sins. You know, friend, there is nothing greater than the forgiveness of sin. That's the greatest gift that can ever be received is the forgiveness of sins. It's better than clothes. It's better than a meal. It's better than money. It's better than the cure for cancer. The cure for sin. Only Jesus can give us the forgiveness of our sin. Look in your notes. I gave you this wonderful quote from Dr. Warren Wearsby. Wearsby says, Forgiveness is the greatest miracle that Jesus ever performs. It meets the greatest need. It costs the greatest price. It brings the greatest blessing and the most lasting results. That's right. So believers, listen, as you interact with people on a day-to-day basis, take a reminder today. Take a reminder here from Jesus. The greatest need that all people have is not in relationship to their bank account or their career or their house or job, physical health, or their bank statement. Their greatest need is their soul. Jesus said in Mark, or excuse me, Matthew, Jesus said Matthew 16, 26, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Listen, when you go out into the world this week, the first priority for you, Christian, is other people and their soul. Their soul, that they might come to know Christ. That they might have forgiveness of their sins. Well, we're going to see now, not everybody in the room was thrilled to see this interaction and this forgiveness taking place. So let's see what happens next. Here's number four. Jesus proves his authority to forgive sins. Number four. Jesus proves his authority to forgive sins. Look at verse 6. And some of the scribes were sitting there, reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus with themselves, Jesus said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Arise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Arise, take up your bed, go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up the bed, and went out in the presence of them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Christian friends, if you live with someone for long enough, pretty soon they know what you will say before you even say it. 
I've been married almost 24 years now, and sometimes my wife will know what I'm going to say even before I say it. And other husbands have said that too. Their wives know what they're going to say even before the words come out. You know what, family? Jesus really did know what other people were going to say. And we see an example of it here. He knew what people were thinking in their hearts and minds before they even formed the words. They didn't even have to say the words, and Jesus knew what they were thinking. Mark tells us the moment that Jesus looked down and told this this paralyzed guy that his sins were forgiven, the scribes were there, they became angry. They were incensed. They were antagonistic. They began to reason in themselves that Jesus was speaking blasphemy. They're looking at this event and they're saying, who does this carpenter from Nazareth think he is? He can't say that. He can't say that. Only God has the power to forgive sins. Well, look in your notes. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson makes a great remark about their their outrage here. Ferguson says there was nothing wrong with their theology, but there was something wrong with their logic. They reasoned that since only God can forgive sins, and this man claims to forgive sins, that he must be blaspheming. There was, however, an alternative conclusion. Perhaps he did have the authority to forgive sins in case he must be God. But to them, that was impossible. And so, family, in the verses that follow, Jesus sets out to demonstrate that He does, in fact, possess the authority as God to forgive sins. Now, how does Jesus prove this? How does Jesus prove that He does have the authority to forgive sins? Well, Jesus does this by asking these leaders a question that I want to show you easier versus harder. Okay? Easier versus harder. Look at verse 9. Jesus says to them, Which action do you think is easier? Saying to this man, your sins are forgiven, or saying to this man, get up and walk? Now, stay with me, okay? You think it through. From a human perspective, the answer is obvious. From a human perspective, it is much easier. It's much easier to say to someone, your sins are forgiven. Why is that easier? Because how do you prove it or disprove it? It's just words. Oh, your sins are forgiven. That statement can be made without any tangible evidence, no visible proof required. You can just say that. How can you possibly disprove that, something that you can't see taking place? Ah, but on the other hand, Saying to someone who is physically handicapped, saying to someone who really is paralyzed, get up and walk. Now that is much, much harder. Why? Because if the paralyzed person doesn't get up and walk, then the person who said those words is a fraud. If you say to a paralyzed person, get up out of your wheelchair, and they don't, What happens to the person who said that? Embarrassment, shame. And so there's the challenge. What does Jesus do? He's laid out the question, easier or harder? Jesus decides to do the harder thing right in their presence. Look at verses 10 to 12. But that you scribes may know that the Son of Man does have power to forgive sins, I say to you, the paralytic, arise, 
take up your bed and go to your house. And immediately, Mark says, the paralyzed man was healed. And he stood up and he did precisely what Jesus commanded him. And the people were amazed. They were astonished. They couldn't believe what they had just seen. This was awesome. Now, what's the point? Here's the point. The point is what Jesus is proving. He proves that because he has the awesome power to do the visible, he surely has the power then to do the invisible, which is the forgiveness of one's sins. If Jesus had a word of healing that was effective for this man's body, then surely his other word of forgiveness of sins was also powerful for this man's soul. So what do we take away from this great climax? I mean, this is the climax of this story. This man is healed. He's healed. He picks up the cot that his buddies built for him, and he hauls it out himself, and he goes home. I mean, this is awesome. This is amazing. So what do we take away? Friends, this climactic scene proves that when Jesus tells us, when Jesus tells us we can come to him for the forgiveness of our sins, he really does have the power to forgive us. You know, I wonder, maybe there are some of you here today, you continue to struggle with this idea of forgiveness. You look back at your life, things that you've done, sins that you've committed, things that you've lived through, the mistakes. Perhaps you think your sins are too big. You say they're too big, they're too vast, they're too despicable. You really don't know me, Pastor. You don't know what I've done. And here you are still questioning Jesus. Questioning Jesus' ability to forgive you and to help you move on with a new chapter of life. Friend, here's the proof right here for you. The proof is in the text. Jesus has the power to forgive you. He has the authority as God to forgive you. Oh, friend, if Jesus has the power to do the things that are so plainly visible like turning water into wine and breaking bread to feed 10,000 and healing a paralyzed guy, if Jesus has the power to do all of those physical things, then surely He still has the power to do the invisible, which is the forgiveness of your sins and making you right with God. Friend, if you're here today, if you're not a Christian, cast your doubts away forever and come to Jesus in faith. Jesus was so willing to accept this man. Well, friend, he's ready to accept you if you will come to him. Come to him by faith and ask him for forgiveness. Friend, if God is speaking to your heart today about your need of forgiveness, your need of Christ, oh, friend, don't turn away today. Don't just run off and plug back into your internet and phone and off into your work week. Slow down and turn to Christ Maybe it's later today, maybe it's tonight, maybe it's someday this week. Friend, reach out to me. I'd love to talk to you about what it means to be forgiven of your sins, what it means to know Christ. Reach out to me. I'd love to talk to you anytime to encourage you and show you how you can be forgiven, how you can come to know Christ. Well, family, as we draw to a close this morning, this great passage of Scripture, it gives us so much to chew on, so much to meditate upon, here in just a few verses of Mark 2, look at some tremendous truths that we learn, that we take with us even this week. The first lesson, to always keep the gospel at the center. 
Secondly, to always be persistent and creative in our outreach. Thirdly, always to see the spiritual needs as the first priority. And fourthly, to rejoice that Jesus can forgive all our sins. Christian friends, I began this message today with that true story, heart-wrenching but true, of that JARS airplane mechanic who forgot to tighten that fuel line, and as a result of his mistake, it caused the deaths of seven people. And for days and days, that man walked in the shadow of despair and grief, and all seemed lost. He was ready to, to take his own life. But everything changed when forgiveness came. Forgiveness came shining into his soul. It took away his guilt and restored to him the joy of life. Believers, that is such an encouraging story. It's one that finds a parallel here in what we studied today in Mark 2. But family, may we also stop and remember, it isn't only the paralyzed man. It isn't only the airplane mechanic. It isn't just those two who have been impacted by forgiveness. We too, you and me, we have been impacted. Our lives have been forever transformed by the forgiving grace of Jesus Christ. So what does Jesus mean to me? What does Jesus mean to you? Friends, Jesus means forgiveness. Thanks for listening. This Preaching for a Change broadcast has been brought to you by the Grace Baptist Church of Hazleton, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at mygracebaptist.church. If you enjoyed this broadcast, then share it with a friend on your favorite social media network. And be sure to join us next time for more enlightening and encouraging biblical exposition here on Preaching for a Change.